Morning Church. The reading today is taken from 1 Kings uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. And if you would like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, which you're most welcome to do, the passage is to be found on pages 351 and 352. The passage is headed, Israel rebels against Rehoboam. Off we go. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam of, sorry, Nick, heard that he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his, his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if indeed you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and went serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than your father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill 
the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Naba, th through Abijah the Shittonite. When all saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? Whose part in Jesse's son? For your visits, O Israel, look after our own house, O David. And so the Israelites went home. May the Lord bless richly this reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. And so now, uh, Archbishop, would you like to come? And as you come, we'll just pray for you as well, because that is what we call a tricky passage. <laughs> so, Father God, we give thanks now for your word, and we give thanks that we can hear your word openly read. And we pray your blessing on Andrew now, and send your spirit upon him and on us, that we may hear your word. Amen. Amen. See, where, where I'm from, this, is, this passage is not called a tricky one, it's called a hospital pass. <laughs> uh, but it's a really important one. Um, thank you so much. It's really good to be with you. I'm delighted to be here in this church, which has been such an important part of uh, my life. And thank you for all that you do as bearers of hope and goodness in this world. Wherever you find yourself, uh, in work, uh, studying, whatever your situation, um, you have the opportunity to do really super and beautiful things and thank you for for being part of this church um when you asked me kai what um, uh, what would be the superpower that i would uh, have or the character you know superman uh, I, time for confession um I, i'm a great fan of wallace and gromit i don't know if you ever have followed wallace and gromit but i remember watching the wrong trousers for the first time really really funny and that moment you know when he's been taken up and he's exhausted from having been uh, led up the side of mountains in and having done a robbery and comes back down and uh, he sits there exhausted does uh, paul wallace and he says oh, this has been a shocking calamity um, <laughs> just like that and uh, and uh, you know, the passage that we're looking at today, uh, in many ways, is a little bit like that. It is a shocking calamity. It's a story about a king who could have, he could have won the jackpot. He could have been the kind of leader who engendered trust and respect and by a single choice, found himself on the wrong side of history and, um, and far from actually building a nation to be uh, a light for the Gentiles, if you like, uh, what he did was he caused schism and division and a period in the history of Israel which at this point would be really bad but it would become even worse when just a couple of hundred years later um, people would be led into exile. And beyond that, there'd be a further exile again, which really tested Israel's faith to the core and made them you know, wonder, have we this time blown it so badly that God has finally got sick of us and said, no more, I'm forgetting about you. My plans will develop in a different way. I'm ending my relationship. That was the question that they had 
that flowed from this moment here. It is a seminal decision. If you know the story, it's very simple to kind of trace it out for us. The death of Solomon, 922, marked a period of change in the kingship. And of course, there are always It wouldn't be uh, otherwise, would it, a good story. There are the good and there are the bad, if you like. Um, Wisdom was perhaps Solomon's greatest gift, but towards the end of his life, that wisdom waned, and we find ourselves with two protagonists, two people who want a slice of the cake, two people who want to rule. One is Rehoboam, one is Jeroboam. And they come together, all of them, a great convocation, a great meeting, a gigantic PCC, if you want. And they're going to choose Roheboam to be their king to succeed. And so he does what kings did at this time. He consults the civil servants, gets them all together and says, what should I do? Should I opt for a policy of engagement and respect, winning their love, or should I command and control their loyalty? Of course, he opts for the latter. And with that, Israel heads off the northern kingdom and says, what part do we have in Jesse's tent in the story of Judah, the southern kingdom? And the separation leads to this period of war time and time again. Kingship has never gone particularly well in Israel's history, but this marks a new low. The question that I want us to wrestle with today, and there are three things that I want us to try and grapple with, uh, take us to the very heart of power. What is power? Why do we have it? How do we exercise it well? How do we exercise it badly? Let's be clear, at the moment in our world, it is very easy to see examples of bad power, isn't it? You only have to look two years into a a war in Ukraine, a very particular exercise of a power which is military, which is all about the imposition of nationhood, of history and reign. You only have to look at the, the ancient and deadly conflict which is being played out in Gaza and Israel, unresolved disputes about land, about faith, about history, all now catapulted together uh, as hostages remain, deprived from their families and Palestinian citizens, as well as terrorists, are being killed. But it makes for a miserable, miserable political public agenda It could hardly be a greater contrast with the kingdom of God, which we're told in scripture is all about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the fruit of the spirit, compare and contrast. But we, who take to ourselves the model of Jesus Christ, have a different approach to power. You know our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, became poor so that out of his poverty you might become rich. Ours is the inversion, the topsy-turvy world where things are the wrong way round, where power is to love. 
and where weakness is not failure, where vulnerabilities are transformed by grace, becoming vehicles of good news in this, our world. Power is nothing to be frightened of, but it's like electricity. Years ago, out on a family trip, we found ourselves in Ireland, and I remember telling uh, my son, no, no, the wire's fine. No, no, just touch it, you'll see. <laughs> he still hasn't forgiven me for that particular uh, episode. You know, like Jurassic Park, do you remember? <laughs> uh, um, power used well blesses and when badly kills, harms and destroys. So I want to share today in the light of the lack of wisdom exercised here by a particular leader, I want us to explore together the dynamics of power. And my, 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 sort of, my purpose in all of this is to try and empower you. And I want to be very deliberate and explicit about that because I'm fully persuaded that we are not impotent in this, our world. We are not onlookers. We are not people simply who from a distance observe and critique. Or maybe we don't even do that, shaking our heads at how dreadful things are around us rather than seeing that we are, as Christ said, we are light and we're salt and we make a difference. And when people, Christians, engage with our world in loving service, transformative, random, beautiful acts of kindness, both together and individually, we have capacity to do such good within our world, to speak of him, uh, and not only to bear witness to him, but to the kind of life that is possible in the service of Jesus Christ. So three things. First of all, I want to speak about power and humility. If you've got a Bible, if you're used to using the Bible, I'm just going to reference um, Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. Paul uh, wrote this one, of course, he was in jail. He had little power. He was a, a person whose chains disabled him, if I can use that word, from doing what he would otherwise have done. But when he found himself in chains, he found that his words were unchained. And we have his story here today. So chapter 2, Philippians, says this, verse 1, reading, if, then, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being born in human likeness and found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We call this the Christ hymn. 
It's a model which is given to us about how Jesus lived his life. And it harks back to that topsy-turvy, upside-down way in which Christian life must be lived each and every day. It is not self-serving, it is selfless giving. Christ emptied himself, took the form of a servant, radical in its nature. Because our world expects pomp, it expects privilege, and it expects power to be exercised through institutions and individuals. And let's be blunt, people like me. Very often people say, well, you know, Archbishop, why can't you change this? I'm so often tempted to say, well, why don't you change it? You're the person who's really important. You're the one who will make a greater difference in your locality than I will. And when we see the stories of Christians, people who are gripped by this vision of what can be, people like um, Henry Nguyen, for example, who understood that when we engage with people who are very different from us, and his story, of course, was the Lash communities, people who um, suffer particular kinds of disabilities. You know, what we find is not only are we doing something that is beautiful in itself, we are different. We become changed because of our engaging with people who are so in need of our love and care. It changes us. It transforms us. Think of when Jesus came to that woman, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. You know, every expectation, every eye was, was on him. She was a sinful woman, and everyone knew what she was like. Her reputation went ahead, so much so that she stood behind him. She wouldn't even address him face on. Chapter 7 of Luke, verses 36 and following. And she wept, and she poured all that she had on his feet and dried them with her hair. Could there have been a greater act to the time of indignity? And yet, Jesus shows us that when we do things that invert the normal order of things, where the holiness of love allows us to do extraordinary things like that, what is released is profoundly important. The truth is, in the exercise of power, whether it be the church, whether it be us, it's not only the capacity of the exercise of power to make a difference, we need the humility that comes with it. Let me remind you, power is like electricity. It really is. It can serve and it can be so, it can be such a great utility or it can damage and it can destroy. So the question I suppose we need to wrestle with is in our own lives, how are we exercising authority and power? What does its discharge look like in, in my life? Is it being used for good or is it being used to further me and my status? and privilege myself. The way of the cross, the way of the Christ, 
was that he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Being found in human likeness, he emptied himself and became obedient to God and to death, even death of the cross. One of the things that I think is most necessary in this whole dynamic of how uh, power and humility works is you and I need to recover a particular kind of song. And it's there in our tradition in scripture. It's the lament. Uh, the lament. The, le- the lament for the wrong exercise of, of power in our midst, whether it's in terms of racial justice or wherever we find it. To recover the biblical dimension which is deeply penitential and which asks God to teach us the ways of gentleness and peace uh, because it is by their fruits that you will know them. That's the first thing. Power and humility. I want to say something about power and the poor here at this uh, particular point and just kind of press rewind just for a, uh, a little bit. When I was starting theological college, um, there was a book which I didn't think was particularly controversial then, but it seemed to create something of a, a furore called Bias to the Poor by David Shepherd, who was the then bishop of, of uh, Liverpool. And what he did was he went through scripture and he showed drawing together the main streams that even though there are texts, like you will always have the poor with you, um, which, which we know, that on the whole, God's heart was for those who are less well-off. And he didn't just mean pounds and pennies. It was the poverty of spirit. I think of that wonderful, beautiful song that Mary sang when she learned that she would bear the Christ child. Forgive me for saying this because um, I learned it in the old language and now I can't remember it in any other phrase other than authorised version. Um, He hath cast down the mighty from their seat. He hath exalted the humble and meek. I get a shiver down the spine when I hear that. Um, Because it's all about the God who actually longs for the high places to be teared down, for the bastions of power to to be brought low so that the things that are beautiful and holy are lifted up and exalted. Of course, that book led to faith in the city. You may remember it was a big report that that came out that tried to align the church's mission to ensuring that we spoke words and did deeds of good news for those who were less well off. Do you know today in Wales, in the 21st century, over 50 years after the National Health Service, and in which the welfare system is perhaps more developed, perhaps than anywhere else in the world, do you know that there are 21% of people who live with relative income poverty? In my cathedral, there is a food bank. It began five years ago and operated twice a week. It now operates six days a week. And I know there are all sorts of questions about creating dependency. I know all of those questions. But let me just tell you, the numbers of people 
who come and can't afford either to buy food or they make a choice between cooking the food and expending money on that or not having any. It's something which is deeply, deeply scandalous. There is something wrong with our society when those who live on the margins of life live ever more on the margins. I had a great opportunity a while back to go to a great charity called Can Cook uh, out on Side. A scouser, good man, we're going to win today. <laughs> called Robbie. And Robbie's a, a Christian. And Robbie is passionate about food. And so what he's done is he's bought these huge ovens, set them up in a big, big uh, storehouse, and they only use local um, ingredients and local sources. They minimize the carbon impact upon the journey that they need. They make beautiful food, and they also teach people how to cook. You know why they teach people how to cook? Because the people who come to them don't know how to cook. It's a wonderful social enterprise. But there's something extraordinary about needing to provide that kind of resource, those kinds of foods available, and the, the kind of skills that once upon a time would have been taken for granted. The story in our Bible reading tells us that when power is exercised and becomes detached from a godly agenda, what you find is ungodliness. And that's the tragedy in the story, isn't it? The command and control uh, that the, the king tries to exercise not only disempowers people, it enrages them. What part do we have? We've been overnight, this king has disenfranchised us. We thought we were part and parcel of this, this thing called Israel. And all of a sudden, we've got nothing. And off we went. And the catastrophe which is unleashed from this moment sees not only the nation divided, but as I said, the exile, which would come 200 years later, and a further exile again, which would be utterly destructive in the nation I do believe that when Paul talked about spiritual warfare in the epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10, he talked about the powers and the principalities. He talked about the challenge, the, the great song that we just sang talked about giants. And you know, sometimes giants are big and they're scary. And the way in which you deal with that is that you need to unmask giants, first of all. And then you need to offer an alternative narrative that is actually better. In which the, the, the dynamic of love is more powerful. And that's why, that's why we love people, isn't it? That, you know, Martin Luther King, for example. Great heroes, the people who showed there was a different way of power being exercised. Later this year, we're going to host a summit in the church in Wales. And you know, it's going to be about H2O, water. And you might think, why is the church in Wales hosting a summit about water? What has that got to do with the gospel? Let me say two things that have really struck me. The first is when it was put to me, 
that there is no better broker in Wales today than the church to do this kind of thing. So often we feel sometimes perhaps overwhelmed by the task in hand, how difficult it is. But the perception very often from the outside is that you and I have a kind of credit for all our mistakes, for all of our sins. We mostly do what it says on the tin. And that trust gives us a particular place today to do good. Second reason is that our rivers are dying. (laughs) You know, because of the, the consequence of agricultural practice and so forth. And if you and I are not concerned about the environment, then we're not listening to God because we ought to be passionate about this. It ought to invoke our energies as much as our lack of prayerfulness. We ought to be as passionate about this as about sharing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. A world that is not destroyed and exploited, but becomes what the vision behind Genesis is all about. Generative blessing and giving. So yeah, we're going to talk about water. And we're going to agree on what we can agree. And where we don't agree, we're going to mark those disagreements well. And we're going to carry on talking. And we're going to go to the government and we're going to say, you need to change this. And this is what change looks like. And only you can do it. But that's the kind of exercise of good power, which isn't oppressive or coercive. It's persuasive and it's holy Watch this space, you'll hear more about it later. That's the second thing. Third thing, I want to talk about power and love. Have you ever noticed 1 Corinthians 13, where it sits? I know, I know where it sits. It's chapter 13. But have you seen what's before it and what's after it? What's before it is all about church relationships. It sits, if you like, right in the heart as a controlling principle about how we ought to do things. Uh, You know, a church that models itself on 1 Corinthians 13 is doing something really, really good. So Paul talks about relationships, about getting it right, and what happens when you have disagreements, and how you make sure that you always come back to love. So he sticks it right in the middle. And then after that, about spiritual gifts. Because spiritual gifts, again, lovingly exercised, are a source of goodness and grace. Badly exercised, they become oppressive and they become coercive. So love is really, really important. And I've been reflecting a little bit on how Jesus restored Peter. And he asked him, and you know this, three times, do you love me? Not do you trust me, not will you walk with me, but do you love me? And every time when Peter said, yes, you know, do you remember what he did? He gave him a task. He said, go and do something. You see, formation in the image of Jesus involves the heart and the body. If we want to be different people, we need to own the gospel here inside, but actually shape our lives accordingly. Do something. Show the love in action. And that's why Jesus 
made Peter do something as well as say something really important. Love has that focus outside of itself. It is selfless in its character. It has the ability to liberate and to recreate. I've just come back from 10 days in Berlin. Um, Never been there before. Anyone been to Berlin here at all? Yeah, fascinating city. Um, Of course, its history follows it like a shadow. Um, First of all, because of what happened in the Second World War. And then because it was really two cities. One of the things you might not know is when the wall was coming down, the, the people who were most active were the same Christian denominations who had challenged Adolf Hitler in the Confessing Church just 30 years earlier. And these same Christians, they provided the space for a kind of change which was seismic when the wall came down. Do you know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? The, the Berlin Wall has now been down longer than it, than it actually existed. It was only up for 28 years. And yet it divided a city. It was the Christians who provided the space for change to come. But they were not only small political people, they were the prayers. They were the people whose whole mission in life wasn't about hate, wasn't about casting a vision that was just a pale reflection of the regime's that were actually controlling the life of the city. They offered a vision of a kingdom in which there was liberty, in which there was hope, in which there was a kind of belonging. And it was that, that, that led to the protests, that led to change. It is the power of love, but it is robust, it is hard-edged, but it is liberating. It brings people from the shadows into the light and from darkness to where God is. So, a king who blew it. It was the Wallace and Gromit moment. This was a shocking calamity and its echoes were felt down the ages. But, but, if he, this king, models how not to do it. What we've been exploring today, the dynamics of power in the life of Jesus, show us how to do it well. When our lives are characterized by the good exercise of power, liberating, loving, caring, gentle, it is deeply subversive is unlike anything our world knows or understands. It's the means by which people not only hear, but see. And in seeing, come to Jesus. Let me pray for you and for your life and for your ministry here in this church. Lord Jesus Christ, though you were in the form of God, you emptied yourself, you became nothing, taking the very role of a servant. Give us your heart and mind for those around us, for those with whom we live our lives. Teach us the ways of gentleness and peace. 
and make us to understand that in you and in your kingdom, there are those things that our world needs most of all. Make us wise, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen.